0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. As we read through this crucifixion story, I hope it occurs to you That some of these sentences, some of these phrases, are things that you can take with you and think about and turn over in your mind. People sometimes carry worry stones, stones that are for rubbing. When you feel worried, they are rubbed smooth as a result. These verses can become for us a kind of worry stone, a kind of thing to rub against and and polish and contemplate. And My task every year during this service is to take just one of them and to rub it and to polish it a little bit and to give it to you in the hope that this sentence, this phrase, will be something meaningful to you to think about as we contemplate the crucifixion. And it occurs to me that in our first reading, at the very beginning of the story, there is a sentence there, easy to pass over, because we're just getting started and we're looking forward to what comes ahead. But in this sentence in verse four of chapter eight, we learn things I think, that give us a way of seeing everything that come afterwards. So this is John 18, verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. And said to them, Whom do you seek? Father, as we turn your word over and over in our minds, pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would give us something to wrestle with, to contemplate as we approach Easter morning. Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Obviously, when you read, these words, the striking thing is the question that Jesus asks and what follows, the response that he gets and what happens when he talks with the soldiers. But for just a moment, I want you to consider the other things that are in this sentence first. Before we look at the question, Whom do you seek? consider how much is contained in the sentence even before Jesus speaks. We learn two things about Jesus. In this moment, two things that reveal a lot about who it was who sacrificed himself on the cross. First, John tells us he knew all that would happen to him. Here at the very beginning of this chain of events, of this catastrophic injustice, as Jesus is pulled into this process for the first time, from his first moment, He knew everything that was going to take place. Nothing was hidden from him. He knew all that would happen from the very beginning of the crucifixion. Jesus already knows what is to come. Nothing will be a surprise to him. Nothing that happens, nothing that transpires. His arrest, being struck by the soldier, being forced to carry his cross, being nailed to it, No surprises for Jesus. No surprises to him. He sees it all. He knows it all because he is God in the flesh and there is nothing hidden from him. This is not a surprise to him. This is, as John tells us, the reason that he came. He came so that these things might happen. There's something else that we learn. Not only that he knew all that would happen to him, but that knowing all that would happen to him, John says he came forward. Jesus came forward to meet them. The soldiers came to arrest him and Jesus didn't try to hide in the bushes of the garden. Jesus didn't disappear into the darkness. Jesus didn't make excuses. He didn't back away. When the soldiers came to arrest him and to take him to the cross, Jesus went forward to meet them. Jesus took the initiative. And that's important because when we think about the crucifixion, oftentimes it's easy to think of the crucifixion as something that was done to Jesus. That Jesus was a kind of victim of the crucifixion. That Jesus was caught up in it, an unjust victim, that terrible things were done to. But in fact, as we discover Jesus here, we see Jesus, not one the crucifixion was done to, crucifixion was something that Jesus did. He came forward. He walked into it. He faced it head on. This was his work. It was why he was there. So he knew everything that would happen, and still he came forward. Still, he strode forward to meet it. And not only did he come forward, but he came forward with a question, a question in the form of a challenge to the soldiers who came to put him in chains. Jesus asks, whom do you seek? And the way John narrates what happens next is astonishing. We read, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. It's interesting when you witness this turn of events and then ask yourself, who exactly is in charge here? When Jesus asks the question of the soldiers who've come to take him into custody, whom do you seek? And they answer him and he says, well, I'm the one, I am he. They're knocked over. They draw back and they fall down on the ground, powerless at his response. Did they even know who he was? When they went to the garden, did they have any idea? When the soldiers give the impression that they know who they're looking for. They've been given a name. And when they're asked, who have you come for? They're able to answer immediately. They can name him but do they know him? The soldiers and the officers who came to take Jesus into custody seem to have had no clue who they were dealing with. And their reaction shows that they don't. They're completely unprepared. When he responds, I am he, they draw back and they fall to the ground. Those words that Jesus speaks, I am he, are interesting. So of course, Jesus would not have been speaking in English, and despite what you may be thinking, he also wasn't speaking in Greek, which is what John wrote his epistle in. But as we have a few clues here, when certain words from Aramaic are translated for us, like Golgotha, Jesus would have been speaking in Aramaic. So John is translating what he said into Greek. And in Greek, in order to give the response of Jesus, it's just two words, ego, amy, ego, amy, ego, like our word ego. It means I, I. Amy is a being verb, and it means am, I am. Those are the only words that Jesus speaks. The he that is supplied in the English translation is implied, but is not actually spoken in John's text. And that's interesting, because when you think about the response of Jesus, I am, it of course reminds you of an earlier passage in John's Gospel, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders and they're talking about Abraham. And Jesus says at the end of that interaction in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He speaks the same words before Abraham was, ego, amy, I am. When he says those words, he's accused of blasphemy because what he's just done is is claim divinity because I am that I am is the meaning of the covenant name of God that was revealed in the Old Testament. And to go around saying things like before Abraham was I am in the minds of his critics claiming to be God taking upon himself divinity, which indeed is one of the charges that we saw was made against him. They think they know who they've come to arrest, but the actual knowledge, when it's revealed, prostrates them. You think about it, those words, I am, it's as if Jesus asks, whom do you seek? And they answer Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am. Like, He's naming himself as well. They name him Jesus of Nazareth, and then he gives them another name that he goes by, and they're on the ground in awe of this revelation of who he is. It must have been surprising to them, because obviously to these soldiers, there was no mystery in the name of Jesus. Jesus was a common name. There were lots of people named Jesus back then. It's just the, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, And because of Joshua in the Old Testament, it was kind of popular to name your kid Joshua or Jesus. So the name held no mystery for them. This was just a guy that they'd been sent to arrest, a guy they'd come to take custody of, a guy who they expected to be able to control and to take over. For us, in the name of Jesus, there is often a very similar kind of familiarity as if the name of Jesus has no more mystery to it. Jesus is an expression. It's a curse. Maybe it's a sentimental painting in your mind, a warm and fuzzy, the original hippie, a guru. Thankfully, now that trucker hats have died, not so much a homeboy anymore, but we've domesticated Jesus. We've made him into something small, a known quantity. Kind of funny. Kind of hilarious. But not who the soldiers met in the garden. The Jesus we think we know wouldn't have this effect on anyone. If this is the Jesus you know, then you don't know Jesus. Because if you knew Jesus, he would knock you on the ground. The knowledge of him, the true knowledge of him, will put you on your face. There's no way to know him without falling down and worshiping him. In other words, you you can know him without actually knowing him. And for a lot of people who think they know who Jesus is, and they think they know what the cross is all about, the reality is they don't. Even great theologians can miss this. Philip Melanchthon, who was the sidekick of Martin Luther, uh, sidekick maybe isn't the word he would have used, a successor of Martin Luther, wrote that studying arcane theology is no guarantee that you know God. The way the medieval philosophers had studied all of the minutiae of theology was no guarantee that they actually knew Christ. But there are some kinds of knowledge, he said, that are necessary. And if you lack those, he'd have questions. He says, as for one who is ignorant of the fundamentals, namely the power of sin, the law, and grace, I do not see how I can call him a Christian. For from these things Christ is known, since to know Christ means to know his benefits. You do not know Christ unless you know his benefits, You do not know who Jesus is unless you have experienced his grace, unless you have found yourself on your face before him in worship. Even then it can be difficult sometimes, as it was for Peter, as we saw. Peter, who was confronted, who was asked multiple times whether or not He was one of Jesus' disciples. And when he answers, he says something interesting. John gives us a, a, a briefer account. But if you look at Matthew's account of Peter's denial, he gives us a little bit more of the back and forth. And what Peter says is quite surprising. When he denies Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 72, the words he speaks are, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. The similar kind of sentiment that we see expressed throughout. People are questioning Jesus. They're trying to figure out what he's all about. From the council and high priest to Pilate himself, everyone seems to be puzzled by who this person is. And now Peter himself says, I do not know the man. And we read those words and we see them as a hypocritical lie. Like he, of course, knows who Jesus is. He's just saying that to avoid being identified with him, sure. But perhaps at the same time, there was some truth to it as well, some unintended truth to the words, I do not know the man. Because if Jesus had known or been known by Peter as fully, as he was known on Pentecost, would Peter have hidden himself? Or would Peter there and then, when confronted, have preached boldly, as he would later? when he'd come to know the Lord that he had confessed with his lips more fully. That would happen later. That would happen once Christ had revealed more about himself, and Peter found himself utterly convinced. It can be difficult to know who Jesus is. Even for those of us who cling to him, there can be mystery associated with him. Whom do you seek? Throughout this account of the crucifixion, this is the question, the essential question that all of the people who confront Jesus here really do have to face. Ironically, most of those people are questioning Christ. But remembering Christ's question in the garden, we can well imagine it turned on each of them, on the high priests, on Pilate, on the crowds? Who is it that you seek? Who is it that you're looking for? If not for Jesus, what king are you waiting for? If not this king? That's the question that the crucifixion asks, because the story of the crucifixion reveals the identity of Jesus. If you want to know who he is, you just have to look at what he does. He knows everything that is to come, and yet he comes forward. And he endures death on the cross because he is love. That is who Christ is. That is who we are seeking. Sometimes when we call people to Christ, when we encourage them to accept the gospel, we might say something like, come to the cross. Come to the cross and know him. If you're seeking Jesus, come to the cross and there you will meet him. As if the cross were stationary, fixed and immovable, and it were necessary for us in order to find him to journey there and to find it. But the Jesus that we find here wasn't fixed and stationary and passive, so that he could only be found by those who sought him out. The Jesus we see here comes forward. The Jesus we see here carries his cross. The Jesus we see here comes to you because you cannot in your own strength come to him. Jesus came forward. He comes carrying his cross. He comes to you and he asks, whom are you seeking? And he gives us the power to know him to know the fellowship of his suffering, to know the glory and power of his resurrection. And when the question is posed to us, he puts the answer on our lips by his grace. Jesus says to us, whom do you seek? Answer always, my Lord and my God. Thank you for listening.